you see people of all creeds writing a book. Like, everyone thinks that they can be a writer, but not everyone is an author. Just a heads up, these words and opinions are mine and my own, much like Gollum and the One Ring. We'll attempt to keep most of this as spoiler-free as possible, but if you have any questions about the material in this podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to doublemoonletters at gmail.com. Thank you, enjoy the podcast. Let's go. Welcome to Letters from a Double Moon, Episode 1, The Curious Case of the Vanished Violet. My name is Nahima, and thank you for your presence here tonight. Okay, now that formalities are out of the way, I just want to say I'm so chuffed, I'm so excited. This is Episode 1, Series 1. I don't even know if this will be a series, but it's Episode 1. The very first in this lovely um, bracket, we'll say. So a little bit about me, um, I guess I'm wanting to do a podcast like this because um, at the moment I'm a publisher by trade and I'm definitely looking to expand my reading, read books that challenge me, read my favourites and bring you along for the ride. But um, aside from that, I like tea and cozy crafts like crochet and I like to play Nintendo Switch, but just the the indie games. Um, I love niche perfume, so I like to hoard that a little bit. Uh, My favorite brands are Juliet Has a Gun and BDK. I love traditional Japanese music and I appreciate it a lot um, whenever I can. I used to play quite a bit the koto, but uh, that's fallen to the wayside in recent times, unfortunately. And I also love to manifest only good things for bees. Because as we all know, bees are what makes this big old world turn round, and as I always say, we need to care for the little bees of all creeds. Honestly, it's a good thing. So I've had about 10 years' experience as a communicator in the space where I am at, Um, I did theatre reviews, theatre critiquing, reporting in the creative space, a bit of journalism. And yeah, in recent times, I'm a freelance publisher, so I love to do this work. I do appraisals, I do assessments, I do publishing, like project management to get, you know, authors where they want to be with their book. Um, And I bloody love it. It's very rewarding and I love the interactions I get day to day with authors and even if it's, you know, a bit of drama happening or a little bit of issues happening with the work, like errors or something, we can always fix it. So I love that. It's always fixable. But can you guess where the podcast name comes from? I have decided to put a little Easter egg in this one and we've come up with a name that relates to one of my fave books. Um, by one of my absolute favourite authors, and I won't say much more than that. (laughs) Okay, enough chit-chat. What are we going to talk about today? So today's topic is not the first book that I would actually pick from my bookshelf. 
Um, certainly not a book that I remember half the time, but whenever I do remember it, I remember it fondly because it is tender. Um, it's a tender work. It's bizarre, and it transports the reader to lonely places, a bit like Laika, um, traveling through space in the space shuttle, Laika the dog. Um, and oh my god, can we just say she was the cutest, goodest girl. Um, I know her story is very sad. Um, I read a little bit of it the other day thinking, oh, this is going to be great. But no, I was heartbroken, my heart tore in too, just thinking about that poor dog. Absolutely terrified, um, you know, being chuffed off to space. And then actually she just died immediately, not even before orbit started. So very sad story was like his, but it's good that we remember it and we kind of know that the animal cruelty, um, like, protests and all that kind of mean something and they mean a lot so it's great that animal cruelty is against a good against a good fight but yeah so basically I could talk about the works of the author that I'd love to talk about today at a later time like a bit more of the stuff that I actually really love but this book today that we're going to talk about is Sputnik Sweetheart Let's hook the book for you, shall we? So Sputnik Sweetheart uh, is written by Haruki Murakami, or, you know, traditionally you would say Murakami Haruki, seeing as he is Japanese. I'm looking at the back of the book now, just the blurb, kind of trying to figure out how to surmise this book for you all. One of the reviews says, Sputnik Sweetheart has touched me deeper and pushed me further than anything I've read in a long time. That was Julie Myerson for The Guardian. Now, basically, the story goes something like this. So this book by Haruki Murakami was translated to English by Philip Gabriel around 2001, I think it came out. Um, After being published initially, I think it was... Let me check the imprint page. 1999. Um, and basically the story goes something like this. Sumire, um, which means violet in Japanese. So like the flower, the little purple flower. Um, she's a 22 year old kind of beatnik wannabe. She wants to be a writer. She loves Kerouac, uh, Jacques Kerouac. She loves, um, dressing in an oversized secondhand coat with big boots. Um, and always has messy hair, always is a bit of a, a shambles, a bit of a hot mess. Um, she goes to her cousin's wedding and she meets Miu, who is an older, successful businesswoman. They sit next to each other for whatever happenstance. Um, and she, Miu, um, kind of asks Samire if she'd like to work for her. All the time, or all the while, Samire is just suddenly hit by this coup de foudre which in French kind of means love at first sight. She kind of becomes really enamored with Miu. And then Samira kind of goes questioning her sexuality. Oh no, am I a lesbian? Am I not? I guess that kind of explains a lot of things. That's how she kind of says it. Um, and she spends long hours kind of breaking everything down to her best friend Kay. Now Kay is this unassuming um, kind of bland man whose first name we never know, um, but he's the narrator of the story and he loves Samire, like with a deep passion. He lusts after her. He loves her like really intensely, kind of the same way that Samire loves Miu. So it's the same kind of level, um, except Miu kind of keeps her, no, sorry, Samire kind of keeps her 
love for Miu's secrets for most of the book um, from Miu, but and Kay does the same for Samira. He can never really tell her how he feels, and it's a bit of a sad kind of situation for him. Stuff happens, he kind of just really um, is moseying along, and then when he just kind of links something of it when Samira says, oh, I've been asked by Miu to go overseas, we're kind of doing this trip together, and she goes to Greece, which is where the penultimate kind of moment, the clincher kind of happens in the book. Um, and something happens to Samira, which means that Miu calls Kay desperate and kind of says, can you come to Greece? We're in a really remote island near Rhodes. Um, and I'm in a pickle. Um, and that's basically kind of how the story goes. So, yeah, there's something really unusual about Sputnik's Sweetheart in that it kind of doesn't really feel like you're reading a Murakami or it kind of doesn't it's very unassuming so unassuming is the theme for today um actually because he his story is bland it it feels tepid or tame because Murakami usually writes about you know these themes um they're quite recurrent in his books like societal taboos violence, war, um, death is a huge one, like suicides, um, death by other means, like murders. But essentially, with the books that he's written, so like his very popular ones, like Kafka on the Shore, say, really explores taboo love, taboo um, nature, societal taboo, like it's I'm going to say taboo a lot, but honestly, um, Kafka on the Shore really explores what it is to be different and what it is to feel lonely. Like a lot of the works that Murakami loves to write is that he writes intuitively and he writes that, you know, we are all kind of floating along, moseying along as it were in our own little bubbles. And it just feels so alienating and so alone, but he does make magic out of the simple and out of the mundane. And there's a huge lyricism to his work. Um, in its simplicity, it's a, he's a very, yeah, he's a very unusual writer in that he writes very simply. And it the lyricism comes from this sense of that it's chaotic, that it's violent, that it's wicked, but it, then it it's all very muted and it looks beyond that. And if you're focusing, if you're reading Murakami and you go, oh dear, like, I don't, I don't like the fact that his women are all very 2D. I don't like the fact that he um, writes about, you know, cruelty to animals, you know, where Johnny Walker and, say, Kafka on the tour viscerally beheads cats. That's a very powerful moment in the in the story. And you might look at all of that, or the fact that you wind up Bird Chronicle people is skinned, or in... Um, I'm trying to think what else. One Q eight four. Our mummy is a murderer, and she kills horrible men. You know, like and colorless Tsukuru Tazaki and his years of pilgrimage. There's also like this visceral kind of uh, murder that happens and rape. But if you kind of focus on that and you look beyond everything else and you kind of dismiss it all, you're kind of missing the point. Um, in my opinion, you're missing the point of what he's actually trying to say. Um, and he writes a whole world of beauty writ large and the zaniness of life. Life can be crazy. Life can be so weird. And he kind of really is clued into that, I believe. There are things about Sputnik's Sweetheart and about Murakami's work that are a little bit dated, but also 
he is an author of his time. Like he began writing what in the sixties, seventies, and and so he's kind of still in a way like in a time capsule. His work is a, he's like encapsulated in that time when he writes, in my opinion. But um, in Sputnik Sweetheart, you know, the male gaze on homosexuality is still there. So it's it is such a dated kind of aspect. Um, but in a way, Murakami does deal with Samire's queerness, with his sensitivity, as someone who is, you know, part of the LGBT space, as I am. Um, I feel like he did it, in a way, um, well. And it's not the focus of the story, so that's good. He's not, like, slamming it into our faces. Oh, no, Samire's a lesbian. God help us. No, definitely not. Um, but there is still something to be said of the way that Samire holds a modicum of masculinity, um, even with all her pretty dresses that she ends up wearing and all the pretty shoes and the perfume and the makeup, the small amount of makeup that she wears. You know, it's kind of a very much... Um, she still has a masculine side to her, which, of course, kind of, I guess, means Murakami might be projecting a masculinity into her um, to kind of make up for the fact that she and Miu are two women in this relationship. Another point I'd like to kind of put forward uh, is that you know, this book is translated. I don't know about you. Um, I can't read Japanese, unfortunately. So I've never been able to read the source material at its source and understand it inherently. So translations, in a way, can be problematic because they can't, won't, or don't sometimes. Or, well, they don't always tell us the truth behind the author's intentions because sometimes it can be impossible. Um, even if you're an author translating your own work, sometimes it can be very difficult to stick to what it was. And staying faithful to the original and making something creative in its own right in another sense can be very tough. And sometimes that's impossible. So in a way, maybe it starts with us needing to be able to read the source material um but that's a whole other kettle of fish honestly which i'm not going to delve into because it's way too complicated for me and my little brain all i'm gonna say though is i'm so here for murakami i'm so here for his new works i'm so here for his old works and i love him for the deeper issues that he writes about so honestly isn't the point of literature to escape honest yeah i mean when i work in my indie publishing industry in the indie publishing industry it's a bit of a whole um interesting kind of specimen because you see people of all creeds writing a book like everyone thinks that they can be a writer but not everyone is an author and so you get a lot of people putting through unsolicited to the house that I work with manuscripts um that kind of represent how they feel and represent that they are in their own way creating something for themselves and that they feel is good. Um, so no shade, honestly, to anyone that does submit their manuscript in for, you know, for someone else to see. It's actually a really magical thing. It's a really wonderful thing um, that people can get creative like this. Like, I can get creative like this with this podcast. Isn't this great? Like, that you can put forward something like this in a world where there's already a lot of it. Uh, like, there's a lot of books out there, honestly. I'm not even going to be able to count them all. Even if you were to give me, a, like, a billion dollars and say count all the books in the world, it, just there's too many because there's also books that people have never published or books that have been self-published or books that are in people's heads and will never see the light of day. But I believe that the point of literature is escapism 
in a lot of ways. It kind of makes you put yourself in someone else's shoes for a while, which is why I absolutely love and endorse reading books from other cultures, even if they are translated into English or whatever language you happen to have is your primary dominant language. It feels so natural and so real to just put yourself in someone else's head and go, oh, this is what it's like. But also, it is a very inherently selfish act to, to want to write because you're kind of creating something that's just for you with your ego and that's all that it is. But honestly, it's such a beautiful kind of thing and I think we are all really here for it clearly. Otherwise, you know, the book industry would have not gone anywhere at this stage. And a lot of people would not be reading works that are seen in this time as problematic. Okay, so we'll move on. Um, I'd love to talk more about this topic later, and I'm sure I will. But um, basically the themes um, in Sputnik's Sweetheart and the nuances that I found interesting. They are that um, Murakami, I noticed in, in an article, and he was doing an interview, and it's on his website, about Sputnik's Sweetheart. And he basically says that women in his novels are shamans or mystics, and they are a doorway to something other. Um, which you can really see here. So, like, Sumire encountering Miyu kind of really spun her life around and around. And then she, without spoiling it, she did feel that um, she, if she couldn't have Miyu in the tangible, then maybe she'd need to have Miyu in the intangible. But yeah, so Murakami's central themes are generally alienation or like tangible alienation. Uh, he loves music, uh, Western music generally, like the Beatles, uh, Western classical, Western romantic, Western baroque, all that. He loves his Vivaldi, definitely. Um, which is another, I guess that's Renaissance. I don't actually remember if Vivaldi is Baroque or any other time, but we'll see. I'll do my research later. Um, so he also writes about war. He writes about death, about food, fashion, nature, sex, spirit, and the metaphysical. He loves magic. He loves cats. He definitely loves cats. Like, cats feature everywhere. And I was thinking to myself, ah, oh, there's no cats in Sputnik's Sweetheart. And I read on, and sure enough, there were cats. Um... So the themes that really sing in this book are those of spirit, uh, music, magic, and even the food. Like, he writes about food. Murakami writes about food in a way that makes me want to eat it right now. Um, the fish is fresh. It is zesty. It is spiritual, almost, that he talks about food in such a way that just makes your mouth water. But it's simple. Like, he talks... He could be writing about making a miso soup and a mackerel for breakfast or something like that, right? Like a traditional Japanese breakfast. Um, he could be talking about that and you would just smell it. You would feel the warmth of the miso soup and you'd feel the like the fishy, beautiful brininess of the mackerel and you would go yum. Honestly, it's, it's beautiful. Um, but I think what this book kind of really seeks to explore thematically and overarchingly is the nature of love you know that red thread that binds us and that we need people as much as we hate them as much as we kind of feel a bit gremlin-y you know like I've seen such a resurgence of gremlin mode even on like reddit there's like goblin core subreddits and I feel like since you know we've had this past couple of years we've had this resurgence of people just being more introverted because 
we don't really want to be around people anymore. But that's a shame, honestly, because people give life as much as they take, you know, your social battery winds down, but they do give life. They give a purpose. So that's what he kind of explores in this one. And overall, this Sputnik Sweetheart is a hidden gem. It is definitely not in comparison with his bigger works. Definitely not amazing, Um, but I love it. I find the ending a little weak. I find that he didn't really explore it fully and therefore you were left wanting at the end. But overall, so good. So good. I love Murakami. Okay, so I'm going to break down the favourite moments in my book. I'm not going to read the excerpts because, you know, copyright. <laughs> but basically, um, in the beginning, there's a scene where Kay talks to Samire and kind of tries to encourage her with her writing and says something along the lines of, um, you know, how did the ancient Chinese um, protect their cities? Something like that. And Samira doesn't know, so Kay explains. He's like, well, basically, you would take, you know, because there was lots of war, um, sites of war, sites of battles um, in ancient China, that they would take the bones of the fallen Chinese soldiers, put them inside the walls, and then bless them with the blood of slaughtered dogs um, to kind of make sure that they would then protect the city and to, by sacrificing the dogs, they were then enacting a kind of spell to then bring to life the spirits of the soldiers. And that was a really beautiful part of the book because, not necessarily with the dog blood and the bone gates, but just the fact that it was so full of hope for the beginning of it was in the beginning of the story and it was so full of hope for what was to come Samira was still in her beatnik phase not yet changed and she's so she's such a character she's Samira is very much someone that I'd love to be myself like she's so cool I, I believe in the beginning anyway um a second part of the book that I really enjoyed was the bit when Miu is trapped in the ferris wheel at the fair Firstly, it's actually really funny that one of the, the, the shaman or the, the local f- fortune teller says, oh, mademoiselle, um, can you come here because your future is about to change? She ignores the fortune teller going, oh, yeah, whatever. But then she ends up in the Ferris wheel, trapped. I won't go too much into it. But basically, she her life changes. And it's a very defining moment in the book. She essentially just almost dies And it explains a lot. It explains a lot about her attitude and a lot about the way that she feels, about Samire, about everything. And it's, as much as it's a scary part of the book, like, you feel a bit scared, you feel for me. Um, Yeah, it's kind of really defining. A final part of the book that I love um, is when Kay arrives in Greece. Like, he's hungry. He's so hungry because he's flown all the way around the world. Well, maybe not all the way, but quite a while away. Ten hours, maybe? Um, But he just kind of feels like this visceral hunger when he gets to Greece. And then he eats, and the food just, oh, it just seems so tasty. And I want to go to Greece right now and eat the food. Essentially, it's just... Yeah, one of my favorite parts is when Murakami starts talking about food because he does it in such a way that, yeah, brings brings the plate into your life and you can eat right then and there. Now, I'm going to try to do this every episode, but this next bit is going to be where I take a moment 
to kind of give thanks to the author that I've chosen for the episode and for their contribution to the world of literature. So this might seem a little bit gratuitous, um, but I'll I'll have you indulge me. And if you've made it this far, then then certainly, yeah, I'm certainly thankful to you as well for taking the time to listen today. But I will finish with a letter to the author of the book and thank them for their contribution. Let me begin. Dear Haruki Murakami, I don't know where to start. So frankly, I've been dreading this a bit because it's such a big deal for me because I love you so much. First of all, I'll just simply say that I'm thankful. Thankful that your work has been so vast, so gentle and so needed. I don't recall how I found you. I don't recall how I picked up your first book or what indeed that first book was. But I feel like I have always known you. You and your words have lifted me up in times of sadness, anger and happiness. And I have depended on you when I was lost. And I found my way home with your encouragement and funny stories. Not to mention, least of all, the food. It's like you were the best friend I needed at the time I most needed a friend. And I will always remember the time I bored the tits off my doctor by reading segments of your words to try and make him understand how lonely I felt and how bereft I was. But despite everything and how my life has turned out, I will always love your words. And that's all that matters. I wish only happiness for you. And I hope you continue to bless the world with your stories. So thank you. With an ever-loving heart, Nahima. So today we've kind of just gone through um, the story of Sputnik Sweetheart, written by Haruki Murakami and translated by Philip Gabriel. We've gone through the themes, we've gone through the food, we've gone through the fashion, and apparently Murakami is a secret shopper. He loves his shopping, so no wonder he writes about fashion in such a way that he does. But if you enjoyed today's episode, send us an email at doublemoonletters at gmail.com or leave a rating. It would be greatly appreciated. What will we talk about next time? So next time I'm looking to really bring to the table a work that I actually helped publish. Um, It is the first book that I helped publish and even though you know it's always a team that kind of is behind the work of an author unless they self-publish entirely by themselves. um, This one's a really special moment for me and I really look forward to sharing it with you all. So that's it for me this episode listeners. I do hope you've enjoyed my contribution to the world of lit podcasting. Until we read again, stay safe out there, wherever you might find yourself. Cue the music. Moon, 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 moon.